Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is John McGuire, and you are listening to Always Record on SyncBook Radio. Today, for episode 112, we have joining us Joanna Lensky. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. We have Joanna Lensky with us. And maybe if you'd like to enlighten us a little bit about who you are or however much you want to <laughs> reveal on that. But you're uh, an interesting person and you have some interesting things to say. So, yeah, why don't you just introduce yourself real quick? <laughs> no pressure there. <laughs> Under pressure. <laughs> well, I'm definitely active on the kitchen sink page. Um, no. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, I got turned on to, I guess it was almost a year ago, actually a little bit more than a year ago, by a good friend of mine, uh, Inky King, who was on there, but Facebook removed him for some reason, which is a bummer. Um, but he's good friends with uh, Lauren uh, up there in Portland, Maine. And yeah, he he introduced me to SyncBook, and I'm so happy that he did. Um, it's been an awesome community to be a part of, and I'm really glad I found it because I didn't really have uh, anybody to talk to about all this stuff before. Um, I was living in New York. Uh, I have been for 10 years or so, and I was part of the occult community down there and um, a couple different groups. Um, one in particular called Babylon Salon, which is a, a women's only, uh, uh, occult group and discussion group. And, um, and also, you know, there's like a, a cult bookstore there called Catland and they have various different events. And so there's like a community of people, I guess, that I knew through that. And, 
Um, I also studied uh, alchemy with um, this guy named Brian Coutenoir, who uh, wrote the book, uh, The Practical Guide for Alchemy, uh, to uh, for Samuel, Sam Weiser. <laughs> um, I studied with him for about a year and a half, and uh, he had a... Um, uh, a study group uh, of of invite uh, invitees, so I was part of that, and uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing before I got hooked up with ThinkBook, and um, yeah, I feel like I feel like in a way I've sort of ascended from all the occult stuff because there was I don't know there was a lot of stuff that I just I don't know I just couldn't really. Uh, I didn't really feel like I fit in there completely. Like well, when you say cult, you're just kind of qualifying a certain uh, je ne sais quoi. When yeah. when a cult ultimately means hidden, but you're using it in a specific way to relate to um, kind of general uh, take on things or whatever. Yeah, I mean, um, well, mostly like Crowley stuff. Um, right. Well, Wiser published Crowley, right? You're saying this guy was published by Wiser. Uh, yeah, yeah, he he did um, a book on alchemy for them. Okay. So you know, when I say a cult, I mean like you know everybody that was part of I don't know the the occult community in Brooklyn was you know kind of had their own concentration of what whatever they were interested in, and um, you know for me it was mostly it was like alchemy and um, you know just sort of reading I was kind of studying different things. Um, but I didn't really have any particular, I mean, concentration, I guess, other than alchemy. I don't know. I was just more into the spirituality of it. Um, and also the conceptual end of things. I tend to be very, uh, intuitive, um, in my approach to, to everything and, um, and sort of this kind of, I'm this kind of thinker that takes in general, like the larger picture, um, and so I'm not as good at like remembering particulars. Um, <laughs> like I can't quote like Crowley books, even though I have like probably 20 of them. Um, but I, I'm not very good at, you know, quoting like, you know, particular things, but, but, um, yeah. So I just kind of was trying to figure stuff out for myself. And, um, I have my own, I had my own sort of practices that, that I would do. And, and then, uh, yeah. And they're, and they're always changing, you know, cause you're always evolving. Um, you know, yoga was a, a something that was a regular practice for me. Meditation, lucid dreaming is a practice for me that I still do regularly, um, and just studying different things. Um, since I've been kind of involved or part of the sync book, sort of kitchen sink page, um, I've I've gotten really interested in in the physics end of stuff, particularly because of uh, this show and and John's show. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm really into that now, <laughs> as well as maintaining my other practices that I mentioned. So that's pretty much what I do. <laughs> well, David, you always bring up the Kabbalah, you correlate that with vacuum dynamics. And we've never talked too extensively on that. And from what I know of Kabbalah, I get some sense of why that is in that the interplay of opposites and some kind of hidden communication channels and there's a lot of parallels as far as general concepts go and also if you view the vacuum as kind of a digital thing which this guy named ralph abraham who's a chaos theory guy but dabbles a lot in mysticism but also questions of consciousness he's gone through some trouble of modeling it as a sort of digital nodal matrix sort of like the tree you just stack a bunch of trees of life everywhere and you get kind of what it looks like so people keep coming back to the same sort of concept now that's only one way of viewing it though because then you can there's all kinds of models for what the source is but they're all interesting and i guess there's some wisdom in the idea that you can't really model any of it that <laughs> it's everything at once Right, well, and it's whatever you want it to be. If you follow the description, then it it it's only it's 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 only associations that feel so direct, but that's only that's a total assumption. And so, like, if you're acknowledging uh, dynamics to the structure of the vacuum, it seems to be what the Zohar is describing, but nobody knows necessarily. It's just that's something that's so relatable. 
it just can't help but be communicated because um, it seems to be describing this thing. And so you're like, well, is this like this? But that's a leap. Um, but it can be a justified leap. So, you know, um, whatever. I don't know. I mean, you're describing consciousness, but then what is consciousness? So, you know. I was actually just... Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, please. I was just watching... Uh, this video um, on YouTube about that. Cause I, that's like a question that I'm always trying to get to the bottom of. Um, but I was just watching this video on, uh, I guess it was Carl Pibram, uh, his ideas about the Fourier transforms. Um, sort of like how consciousness is, um, you know, generated from these electrical signals, you know, that we get from our you know, sensory perceptions and that they radiate, uh, that that energy radiates out and sort of, creates these, um, I don't know if I understand it correctly, but, um, you know, just sort of radiates and uh, connects to the other floating around, um, you know, sort of atoms, um, electrons and things. And and so we're all kind of like tuned into that same energy. Um, The idea of the collective consciousness, I definitely believe in that. But I don't know, you probably know more about that than I do, John. (laughs) The Fourier transforms and how it translates uh, the visual information that we take in and are processing constantly. Right. It's sort of a wave interpretation of reality and everyone from how you perceive sound to how you perceive images coming into your eye to just general, even probably skin to atmosphere interaction. If you look at the boundary conditions, there's probably some kind of weird fractal holographic qualia to it. And that seems to be a just something that goes on in nature over and over. So Fourier transform is really a reflection of the fractal nature of things and also the wave structure of matter and how we interpret everything kind of harmonically or musically or electromagnetically or I don't know. There's all kinds of fucking ways of spinning that yarn. So, but that also factors into the holographic idea. It factors into David Bohm's ideas of the implicate order. I mean, he models a lot of his, like the motion of electrons, how the field works in his model, according to similar premises. So Fourier transforms wave structure of matter. An electron is nothing more than a reflection, kind of like a manifestation on a deeper continuum. So that's how quantum field theory sees it as well, but he goes a level deeper than quantum field theory. Is that what he but, called the quantum wave potentials? Was that, was that? Yeah. Okay, that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I was just want to make sure I understand. <laughs> yeah, well, he just called it the quantum potential. Oh, okay. And, and his perception of wave, I don't know, it was a non-local field, so he didn't even speak of how it was really communicated as much as it was just like, it's a field, it communicates to the field, it's non-local. It's not based on force, it's based on form. So that's a very odd concept because all our fields are force fields, but his is like a form field or an information field. So it's formative. It's like a Sheldrakean morphic field, but it's way more sophisticated. And it's basically totally congruent with everything found in quantum mechanics. There's no quarrels in quantum mechanics that that Bohm's interpretation works fine. That you can see reality is exactly how he says it and has modeled it mathematically. And there's no argument against it. And now the question is just then, okay, well, what interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct? And then that's the question. So it's either Bohm's or it's the many worlds interpretation or it's the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways of seeing it. But I guess the question is it doesn't matter which way you want to see it because if they all work, then there's no real truth in any of them except that they're pieces of the puzzle. And you can pick whichever one you want to go with because they're all valid in some sense i think some are more valid than others like bohm's i think is the best but that's just me i don't know maybe i'm wrong but that works so if you want a physical conception of things that's a good way of viewing it or adopting his model and david i don't know your uh, baruch seems to have gravitated to bohm and that can't be wrong and that there's like these con- all these connections going on with his model that draw on all sorts of ways of viewing the universe so well he was a Yeah, well, Bohm pretty much, like, gets, he simplifies it 
tremendously for something that's so complex and um, in its simplification, I think that there's something that just becomes relatable. It's like you'll have people from all kinds of, you know, religious backgrounds will still be able to acknowledge Krishnamurti because um, it's it's generally understood that he's not he's not taking a position in the same way. Um, he's kind of taking a position of no position. Um, but there's certain things that can't help but be acknowledged when you're working with kind of like a baseline, like, you know, like in Pi, when he's like, restate my assumptions, the universe is made of numbers, you know, these kind of things. Um, they're not as, they're generally not as debatable. Um, I don't think Bohm is, I don't understand how somebody could really even argue with a lot of the things that he says, just because it's just like, it's so baseline, if that makes sense. Um, well, it's grounded in a lot of Eastern ideas too. Bohm puts a Western spin, or I guess a Western thinking process to. Eastern yeah, I mean, you could say that about Baruch, but then I'm like, well, you know, if somebody's studying the Yoga Sutras, they kind of resonate with Bohm as well. It's just um, a lot <laughs> of it, he is a very adaptable. Uh, he has a very adaptable understanding. Just and his story is just so interesting, and in that he was ostracized, but he was never totally. Everyone who was a who's who knew who he was and paid attention to what he did, but didn't really publicize it too much. But there was almost a. It wasn't a conspiracy against him, but there was a thought, uh, a thought or an academic prejudice, definitely quasi organized. They even talked about him at conferences and had a gentleman's agreement not to talk too loudly about what Bohm was doing, right. but also not, not pay attention because the conference was all about him. And there's this undercurrent of, and even Wolfgang Pauli, I mean, again, no one pays attention to the last part of his career where he went whatever crazy and was mystical, but actually was getting close to something probably pretty relevant with Young. But he's just known for the neutrino and these kinds of ideas, which are interesting, but I find the other parts of him way more interesting. And so there's all these overlaps between the occult and science and mysticism and science, and it's all just fucking writing, writing out sigils and perceiving and divining and invoking whatever <laughs> through electromagnetic devices or through fucking runes or something that you toss into the, the fire. So, it's yeah. Like, um... Speaking of which, I have a question for you, Joanna. Uh, <laughs> and you don't you don't have to go there. We can cut me even asking this question out if if need be. But would you um, maybe it doesn't even have to be now in the conversation? But share your your colleague story. Oh gosh, <laughs> there's that a lot to ask. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of I don't know. It's, if it's... personal and it's heavy and it's yeah. Well, I mean, it just sounds silly, but I guess I can share it. I mean, everything really is, <laughs> speaking of the holographic model, uh, you know, everything is just sort of a projection of light, you know, interpreted light for sensory perception. So, I mean, that's no different. And it was just, you know, it was, I guess, um, yeah, it was a personal experience, but it's hard to describe to other people in a way that they might understand. But I don't know if you think I if it's worth sharing, I, I don't mind. <laughs> it's it's totally up to you. I just found it really really interesting, and uh, I got I got to hear it. And uh, I I feel it would make for good radio. I think also, uh, you know, just I could yeah I could I could get into that. I you know I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I could definitely get into that. I, I think to get there, you know, kind of what we're, you know, what uh, we were just talking about, what John was just talking about, is this all this crossover, all these different methods that, um, you know, humanity has tried to explain, you know, uh, matter, reality, and what is it, and what's underlying everything, what's powering everything, and that's definitely a question that I've always had in my mind, and everything I've ever explored which includes actually um, chaos magic, speaking of which I, I, I had more of a, my magical practice was more you know, chaos related. Um, when I came across um, Austin Osmond Smear, or I can never say his name right, <laughs> but. Um, right. And I think it's actually pronounced chaos as well. Yeah. Chaos. Yeah. I have really, <laughs> I'm, jo I'm joking. <laughs> uh, well, he, yeah. His, <laughs> you ever saw, um, what book was it? Uh, I forget. Zoskia. Did you ever read Zoskia? The um, he had this. 
I think there was two volumes, but he did all these drawings. It was just, they were just insane. Like his drawings were just like, basically he was making all these drawings and, 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 and he was kind of establishing his own language, like of magic, his own chaos magic language. Yeah. <laughs> that, I had a friend with his books. Yeah, I think it, I think it's called Zoskia. I, I haven't I haven't looked into it in a long time, but that was actually that was what got me into the occult. Was like, here's this this artist, this guy who basically invented his own sort of language of everything in in his own way, and like he just basically was like, I'm gonna make my own type of magic. I don't care about Crowley or anybody else. <laughs> and um, so that's that kind of got me into it, but. Um, so yeah, all this crossover, different things that I'm interested in, which you can see on Facebook is all over the map. But it all kind of, you know, I do, I believe there's a point in which everything intersects. And um, you know, and so far I agree with John that that Bohm's ideas um, are to me seem like the, they make the most sense to me on a physical level. Um, but then I think I don't know if it was an always record show. It was a recent one. Um, where he had somebody from uh, a neurophysiologist from um, Wayne University who's talking about the sutras. Um, yep, that was Don DeGracia. Don DeGracia. Mm. Sorry, I'm bad with names. Um, he was amazing. Oh my God, I, I, that really, that was like earlier in the week that I listened to that, and it really just totally opened me up. Like He's all talking this- about Patanjali. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that- the, the sutras and like the description of, you know, the four worlds and the different consciousnesses that are consciousness that pertain to each world. I totally feel like I've experienced that. Um, and, and Samadhi, I've definitely experienced that. And, and through meditation, uh, through my Buddhist, uh, sort of, um, uh, meditation, which, um, is Shambhala meditation or Shambhala Buddhism is what I study. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very meditation, mindfulness practice. You know, you, you do a lot of meditation in Shambhala. And um, so when I had never, I I think I even have the Panjali book, but I've never really read it in its uh, full extent. And just the way, listening to him, he the way he talked about it was just so sim- simple and easy to understand. And, it, like, I was, like, huge aha moment for that whole show. <laughs> and I've been thinking about that all week. So I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to talk about on this show because I was thinking, Oh, I'd get really into the physics end of stuff because that's what, you know, I, I would have wanted to really talk about with you guys. But now my head's in this other place of like trying to process everything he was saying and, and, and matching that up with like the bone stuff and, and my own personal experience. So, um, yeah, I'm like, I feel like in a different place than I was, you know, a week ago after that show. Right. You know that there is actually, uh, what is it? You probably know this book. I think it's called The Self-Aware Universe. Um, I forget the writer, but it's pretty popular book on quantum stuff. Do you, does this ring a bell for you, John? Yeah, I was, I'm forgetting okay. his name, but he's an yes, Indian physicist. He's an Indian... And he's, he's, yeah, he's okay, uh, but go he on. He wrote a book. Amit? What's that? Is his name Amit? I can't remember. Yeah, I'm I, I met him. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was doing a talk on a book that he did after the self-aware universe that's specifically taking core ideas in Patanjali and applying them to quantum theory. And uh, it's re- it was really uncanny. It was a great presentation. Um, I don't remember the name of the book, but I know that it's in his um, catalog. So he, <laughs> he definitely did a really incredible work based off of just that that course the correspondences between what we know of patanjali and how he because he couldn't help but find all of these resonances you know and he he writes extensively about it and uh, that looks like a really good book i never i never read it but i got to hear him do a talk on it and it kind of blew me away uh sounds amazing sounds right up my alley actually (laughs) i don't have you read it john I haven't read that book. I do know his work, though, and I've sampled it a bit. But he he is of the persuasion that there's also the other school of quantum physics that says, okay, well, the conscious observer is necessary to make the universe exist in the first place, so to speak, or give it a framework or something. And so he's of that persuasion that basically observation is creating what we... That's creating the universe. So it's a, <clears throat> it's a rather... 
I'm not going to call it a fundamentalist view of, of things, but he's come down and, and trying to persuade you of a point of view. And the truth is like, I've just mentioned, it's not, it can't be one or the other. Like he has some interesting ideas, but there's other things that, well, there's all kinds of philosophical questions and objections you can raise to every point of view. And so I guess I haven't, I only have so much attention. I can't give it to everybody and I haven't given it to him yet, but I will say that on Don de Gracia, he takes more of a chaos theory perspective where a lot of people go to quantum physics, which is both relevant, but obvious. And the chaos theory dynamic is actually less obvious. It's just a systems view of the world that everything fits into these dynamic patterns and systems. And so if consciousness is just not in the head, well, then consciousness itself takes on patterns and you can connect with those patterns in some way. So you're either shaping them or they're interacting back on you. And that I think is more relevant or has more, it holds more interest for me than, yeah, okay, I'm non-locally everywhere at once, I guess, or I don't know. I don't know what Have that you ever... It's an well, interesting concept. But okay. That's true. I mean, we are non-local. That's like even proven by experiment. I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying like as born far and as how I can... Yeah, how I can view reality in a different way and, and uh, make my intention more relevant in my mind. It's like, okay, well, everything I'm doing is giving shape to something around me in some kind of subtle way. So, Well, the, the question I have is, um, maybe you could answer it because uh, you know more than I do, but if, um, you know, if, if there is such a thing as a collective consciousness, um, wouldn't that make possibly consciousness a system in itself because it's more than one and it connects to each other? In a way, so right. It, yeah. I mean, it's a system in itself. And then when a bunch of them come together, you could think of it as a super system. And then that's the whole concept of the world brain or the new sphere, or this kind of concept, uh, collective consciousness, etc. So I don't know. Yeah, there's like something they can link up. Consciousnesses link up all the time. We're linking up right now. And then just as far as non or indirect linking. Yeah. I mean, it's just like this when you really think of people and the environment and ecology everything's really connected there's no getting away from that how does Baum do uh how does he approach the question of like what what is the the thing that's creating all of the sort of light uh that that we interpret as you know as images as our reality like what's what's behind what's creating all of that that hologram does he talk about oh well he doesn't go deeper than the quantum potential he says what's below the quantum potential is another order he's t- just talks about orders upon orders like it's the same concept of say okay well the world's on the back of a turtle what's below the turtle more turtles he just he adopt he goes with that which is really the only thing you can adopt after a while it's like what's below this what's below this okay. we don't know he he gives some framework for how quantum mechanics works in terms of how can an electron be here and suddenly there how can it appear non-local? How can it appear to go nowhere or jump, make these quantum jumps or something like that? So he, he goes into explaining that, but he's like, well, what's below the quantum level, the subquantum level? He has a harder time going there, but he says there's an implicate order in his book where he's written various things on it, where he's given a general framework for it, which again is kind of Eastern. And there's like, it's a lot of it's just based on interference and these sorts of fluid dynamic systems kind of things but he's very general and vague about the specifics of that because you can't really explore something below it's called the Planck length we don't have any mathematics to even begin to explain it so you can only explain it conceptually but anyway it's like as far as the mind goes the mind is what we perceive as mind is probably at least half or partially outside of ourselves so whatever the implicate order is our consciousness is coming from that so there's if there's a fractal nature to reality there's some sort of self-similarity going on but i don't know how far you take that i really like uh i think michael talbot gives an example of um like if you were looking at an aquarium with one fish in it and it's in water and you had a i think a video camera facing one one um like towards the the fish and one on the side and if you had no con- you know conception of what a, an aquarium was it would look and you're watching two tv screens with both cameras showing the fish it would look like you're watching two different fishes or fish <laughs> as opposed to one fish but we since we don't have sort of if our our brain can't really compute the the, the bigger picture 
Um, right, right. It's about understanding that your perception, yes, does create a reality, but it's also, I think that it's both at the same time. So reality is both inherently subjective, but we're drawing on from some objective sources beyond us. And who knows how deep it goes and et cetera, but I think there's something there's a complementary relationship there. Something can be objective and subjective at the same time. So we're drawing on a source and creating a subjective sort of experience, but at the same time there is something going on. There's a dynamic going on at a deep level outside of ourselves. And if that's creating us, well, um, I don't know. If there's a self-similarity in nature, a fractal nature to things, it's not crazy to be like, well, it's probably, you know, ecological nature is a lot of interconnectivity they form probably from waves because when you get down deep that seems to be all there is so taking those kinds of ideas makes some sense to me and um sorry i forgot (laughs) what else you were saying i was gonna say on that but yeah we agree i mean like maybe this reality that we live in is just one slice of the entire piece you know it's like oh yeah it's a layer you you can or was it, I yeah. don't know if it was Pibram, but you can, you can slice, or, you know, each thing is like one aspect to it there. You can slice like something four times and it's going to create four of the same thing or part of the same thing. It's all still part of the one, you know? Right. Everything just keeps building on itself. So it can't help but building in its own image. So that whole idea of, Oh God, building man in his own image. Well, where'd that idea come from? It's just like, it's, well, look at things. It was fractal. <laughs> There's fractals everywhere, so well, people Well, it works that. one way, but not the other, and that comes up a lot, and it's emphasized a lot. And so, where if you make the statement, "Oh, God created man in His own image," it's like we automatically assume that then God is in our image, but are we perceiving ourselves correctly? And so, you have to, you know, call in kind of the idea of generating the double, you know, projecting a double. And that we're, we're, what we're relating to as ourselves that we perceive as ourselves is it in fact ourselves. And so if you say our self is created in the image of this, do we see the image? Like, really? Like, why are we projecting, you know, if things work in terms of emanation, why are we taking the thing that furthest extends and then projecting it back to the source as if the source was the same when somewhere along the way everything could be totally skewed? Well, here's a question for you, David, because you know a lot more about the Kabbalah than I do. But um, I was watching something recently that was talking about how what the Holy Grail is, is basically like um, these Hebrew, it's like a series of Hebrew letters and and numbers that make up a sort of mathematical language that underlies everything. And this is sort of what the core of, I guess, all mythical knowledge is supposed to be. But... um, and so, you know, that that carried into, I guess, that, I don't know what I'm trying to say. But is there, is in Kabbalah, is there, you know, this belief that this math, like, mathematical language uh, that, that the, you know, that is embedded in Hebrew um, has, you know, that's existed before everything, could that possibly be what explains that, that what, what we're talking about? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer. And if you start getting into the chalice, you know, it'd be nice to have Jason Barrera on to discuss that one. Because I think I just, right away, as soon as you're asking the question, I'm like, you'd probably have more to say on that than I do, specifically in regards to the Grail, because that's not an old uh, idea. I've just, I've, since you can find all the correspondences pretty easily uh, with a lot of the things in the book of Revelations, you know, she, you know, the, the Scarlet Woman, she holds up the chalice, which I guess people associate um, but it's not, uh, really my area, um, to like, you know, try and apply that. It's just, I can take corollaries of things and then I've studied, um, you know, uh, certain texts that are, seem to be exploring the same archetypes or whatever. But as far as the grail goes, I don't know. I was, I was relating it to the, um, you know, the sacral center and, uh, for numerous reasons, but more relating to like, mystery Babylon stuff, which isn't traditional in any sense. So I don't know. I don't know a traditional view of the, of the chalice necessarily, unless if you want to correspond it to something. Um, well, it's not something I, I believe in. It's just something I, I watched that I thought was interesting. It was like, I think I might've posted it to my, right. Well, how many things do you read that you, I mean, you said you had 20 books of Crowley's, you know, I mean, 
uh, how much do you actually believe when you? It, it's just it's interesting to know that people do believe it, and then you know what, what is the power of belief too? Then you know um, if, if you're relating to something as though it's real, in a sense, it kind of becomes real, you know, relatively speaking, to an extent. And that's the, that's the thing with Crowley. It's like, well, if you got enough people with a consensus. You know, and they're projecting that. How does that actually warp the thing in itself? You know, what is, what is the uh, uh, full capacity of the observer to manipulate the matter? You know, I mean, I don't know how much of our perceptions are actually like you know straight, kind of sculpted through through our projections. You know, and then if you have enough people projecting the same thing, the power of that. So yeah, Crowley brings up a lot of questions in that regard. Because, I mean, you could go into Iowa's and Lamb and the idea of the greys, and you got a lot of people out there believing in greys, and the earliest example of um, the greys that I've come across is, you know, Lom, drawn by Crowley, so that gets really weird. <laughs> You're like, well, this is a huge movement, man, I don't know, there's a lot of people believing in the classic grey, you know. I was just talking to this guy about aggregores these collective sort of entities or thought forms or however you want to conceptualize them, but they're sort of created through like this sort of collective consciousness mechanism, I guess, only it doesn't have to be everybody. It's just like, it can be a bubble of awareness that creates this aggregore, this thought form and gives it momentum or some sort of momentum through time, maybe. So even though it's not timeless, it's like it, it endures the myth for long. So like the Crowley idea, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of fucking myth and all sorts of divisiveness about who he was or what he was. And it's like, I don't even care. It's just, he's just an interesting character. It's enough for me. And, right. uh, no, he wasn't, he wasn't some great guy, but it's like, uh, there's a lot of artists that weren't great guys. It's like, I let their art inspire me. I don't. I don't focus too much on putting them on a right. pedestal. Right, well, you can see his degree of influence, and that's that becomes interesting, because he, his influence is so far-reaching into so many different areas, and then you got to wonder, like, in terms of occult, you know, like, matters, it's like, there's so many sheaths to this thing, and, like, I'm like, you know, you, you look into the whole um, British-German-American intelligence bit, uh, and then it's just basically what I, what I, the main thing that I come to with Crowley is this fucking phenomenon where you have some bastard, you know, who's like, he's not, he's setting the sides below him against each other. So manipulating people to fight and then making profit off of their, their destroying each other. And like that phenomenon and like false flag terrorism, like extends so far and like, um, I mean, this has been going on long before Crowley, but Crowley came up with formulas, you know, documented to like aid in that kind of phenomenon. And so people who are just nothing but positivity for Crowley, it's, it's really like kind of like, well, is that, you know, I mean, you could argue that from a, from their rationalization, they're like, well, you know, you just want to fuck with the public until they get to the point where they see what you're doing and they, they react and then maybe you'll have a renaissance or whatever in that reaction or revolution, you know? Um, but then why, it's just still like, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't know if that's the right th way to go about that. I don't know. I mean, it seems, I can see how, how those bastards can rationalize it, but, uh, <laughs> I think there's like a, I always, I've always seen there's a huge parallel between like Crowley and Immanuel Kant in, mm -hmm. in, in terms of that, um, you know, he, the idea of, you know, being good, being, you know, uh, having, being of a good will, you know, having that as the underlying sort of to all your actions. And, uh, and he was very prolific too, like, like Crowley. And, you know, he, it, I couldn't stand reading him in college because it was like, because he was so prolific and he would like, you know, write in these circles of, of things. And he has like this whole canon of, of work, but, um, from what I gathered from that, I just, I don't know. I remember when I first started reading a little bit of Crowley, I was like, kept thinking in my head how it reminded me of reading Kant. <laughs> you know? Right. You can't touch this, Crowley. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, but in, in regards to the thing in itself and this whole focus, like there's so much self, like, you know, real work going in, but like Crowley is so political 
and it comes across at times, you know, I mean, he's, he considers himself, you know, a very, a very, uh, prominent political figure. And it's like, well, it's, I mean, it didn't, it, up until recently, it didn't seem justified. And I wondered that about Weiser because Weiser, they, they, I mean, it was, it's probably, I'm, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Uh, on the show, <laughs> but uh, that Weiser dropped Crowley, dropped publishing Crowley, um, like right at the same time as Secret Agent Six 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 came out, which was which is profound in terms of Crowley because that's that's a very empirical book um, tying him to false flag terrorism, and so I I found that really interesting because from the from the Weiser perspective they're just they're I mean they're publishing an occultist and that was that. Um, now you're dealing with secret agents who are not so secret anymore. Um, and the specifics around what they're up to is not so secret anymore. So I don't know. It's kind of weird. I was wondering about that too. I don't, I couldn't, I don't really know why, why, why they, why they dropped him either. I've always wondered that myself. Yeah, because they're making money off of Crowley books. Like, well, they built their whole like thing on him. You know, that was, that was like... I think were the first few books that they published were playing books, I think. Yeah. So I mean they've built they built who they were on him and then to drop him like that's kind of saying that's a huge slap slap in the face. It's saying something and I don't know exactly why that is. I always wondered. Yeah, I mean I couldn't help but just notice the timing there. Cause that was because in my own studies that was a huge development. Because I had read so many fucking books by Crowley without knowing that side of it. And then as as soon as I got that book um, the Secret Agent 666 book, I had to put it alongside Crowley's Confessions and just kind of go through for a while and look at the corollaries, which are all there and all in order. So when he's going to some place for some crazy, you know, op, it's corresponding to where he's going in his confessions for completely magical purposes. And so you have this double meaning throughout his life where he's he's doing this practice or he's doing this thing for such and such a reason, according to him, and then you look, well, he's actually going to the same place and documented, you know, <laughs> in the fucking files. He's got all of these, you know, uh, ulterior motives for manipulating nations against each other and shit, and, like, you know, not the people at the top, but everybody down below. I mean, that's something that people find very offensive. Like, you can't... If you talk to a, a vet or something, like, get out of town, you know. But, like, even if you talk to regular people sometimes and you point out different ideas or possibilities where you're like, you know, is it possible that all of World War One and all of World War Two were actually, like, you know, these these rich bastards manipulating, like, you know, just unbelievable amounts of people to fucking go at each other so that they can make profit off of them and not caring how many deaths come out of that in order for them to do so? Like what, that's what, what other reasons are there? <laughs> right, but it's a it's an it's an offensive thing to say because people don't want to believe that their loved ones or themselves are di- are dying for a cause that that isn't the cause that they think it is, but is actually just money. You know, um, it's that brings. Oh, sorry. No, no. <laughs> it's a little bit of a lag, I think, on the Skype. So I'm sorry if I keep cutting you off. Oh no, you can cut me off. I don't mind. I like it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um. No, but, oh, God, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I guess, yeah, that brings me to another thing that I was hoping we would talk about, um, because I've heard it on various shows um, mentioned about how difficult um, it is to, you know, talk about things like sync with people who, you know, they just think you're crazy. And I, you know, I've definitely, uh, that's why I'm so happy to have found the sync book group, because I've, every time I've ever tried to talk about, you know, ideas, whether they're conspiracy theory ideas or spiritual ideas or just ideas on like reality, um, you know, with, with people that aren't, you know, in, in sort of interested in that it's, they get, it's such a, uh, an inverse reaction you get from them. You know, people get really offended, um, when you talk about stuff that they are just not ready to, to even think about, never mind accept, but just, you know, just even like, you know, acknowledge it. It's very upsetting, for people and I've had I've dealt with a lot of you know situations with people where they're kind of like really offended and and um angry or whatever it's it's an emotional reaction and I see it happen in front of me and 
I think because of my meditation training, I'm able to just kind of like watch it happen. Like I'm watching it on a TV screen and see that emotion just kind of rise out of that person and cause them to be so, you know, angry. (laughs) And it's, yeah. So it's, it's difficult to, I can, I can see how that is for people, but when you see the bigger picture, I think it's easier to, you know, not have such an emotional reaction to, to something that you're not, you know, that you don't believe, you know, you know what right. I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, you know, I've at least gotten a little better at, sometimes it doesn't matter how well you articulate something, but I really make an effort to articulate what I'm actually saying, because I know where people run with it, and I'm like, well, I'm not, like, even if, like, if I'm having a conversation about Crowley or something or whatever, you know, it's like, I'm not saying that this is what it is. I'm just saying that this is like I'm exploring the material and this is what I'm gathering. But a lot of times I could just be gathering what certain people believe and I'm trying to understand their belief system. Not to say that their belief system is the right is the is the fucking truth. It's just like I want to I want to get the idea of what their actual process is. I want to understand how people rationalize what they're doing um at the different uh tiers of society you know how can you rationalize this well you know i mean the babylon working is is very um you know explains a lot but beyond that you know it's like i mean you get into them you can look at people's own writings and that is amazing that like the way information works now like you can you have writings available to you that you know 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't be available to the public and it's there and it's like, Oh wow, you got it. You got an open secret to a degree that there, there, there's never been before. I mean, secret societies were secret. They're not a secret anymore. And we still use the same term to refer to them. You know, I mean, they got secret elements or secret proceedings or whatever, but like a lot of information is like so readily available. It's ridiculous. You know? But only for those who search for it, there's so many people that it, and it is it is completely available. Probably, probably most most of the most secret stuff that they've been guarding for all these years is probably now out in the open if you look for it, if you're searching for it. Um, but that takes a certain kind of person to begin with, somebody who who already co- starts with an open mind and a curious mind, and who looks for that information. I guess that's how we all got to this place where we're able to be part of something like the Sync Book, and we can all discuss these things. But you have to be that kind of person. And I think people like us are very rare in the the sort of grand scheme of things. And so a lot of people still don't get it, whether even though it's not really secret anymore. (laughs) Right. And this is the thing with, when it comes to corruption too, the different, the distinction between a cabal and Kabbalah, you know, when you have, when you have extreme corruption and you have these things surfacing and like people are looking at stuff in media that eventually comes out and you're like, oh my god, this person did this fucking horrific thing or whatever. And, like, I'm like, dude, if you're doing everything they can to keep things secret like that, and then they surface, what is the, like, just, you know, assuming, like, to a degree, like, or speculating on it, what, for everything that surfaces that's so fucking horrific, how many things wouldn't surface if they're trying to hide them all? Does that make sense? Like, if you're... (laughs) If you're making an effort to keep things secret and things start popping up, you know, for how many things that are actually being kept secret, how many would pop up? I would imagine that it would be a smaller percentage. Um, you things know. that pop up? Well, yeah, when you're like, oh, there's some celebrity that everyone loves. You know, you're like, whatever, Bill Cosby. You're like, oh, I fucking love Bill Cosby. I was raised on Bill Cosby. I watched the Bill Cosby show when I was growing up. You know, I love that guy. Oh, what? He he raped nine women? Oh, my God, what a son of a bitch. And I'm like, for everything that surfaces that's seedy, whatever it is, or if it's in politics, mass murder and all of this shit, it's like, you know, I would I would assume... And I don't know, but I would assume that for everything popping up, there's 10 things that are equally disturbing that didn't pop up in terms mm-hmm. of the public's awareness. And that's just, that's how I'm oriented to think. And like, you know, that's, that's what distinguishes a conspiracy theorist from somebody who's, you know, in my opinion, has their head in the sand, but that's my own um, arrogance due to my own belief system. But yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you don't acknowledge that there are conspiracies, I, I would assume you have your head in the sand. 
Uh, but, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's that's uh, that brings me to the idea of of, of media and how important it is um, for for truth in media, and that um, thankfully there are you know uh, people out there that um, you know journalists that are trying to uncover all those dark seedy things, and and these things do come up, and you know and then you have like the whatever the I hate to say this word cabal, but I don't know what else to call it. But, you know, the people controlling the mass, the mass media try to keep that stuff, um, you know, out of the mainstream, you know, news that every, you know, that the masses are going to watch. Um, but but there is, you know, other outlets um, that do, you know, actually uncover a lot, a lot of stuff if you're willing to look for it. But, yeah, a lot of people's heads are in the sand. And um, but that's something I'm very passionate about is. um you know, the uh, freedom of speech and the freedom, the, you know, the freedom to express yourself. Um, you know, I, that actually got me into, uh, you know, I'm really interested in, um, in information security and cybersecurity um, for the purposes of being able to protect your right to privacy. Um, that's so, you know, I'm, I'm learning that actually I'm going to, um, well, I'm taking an intro to computer science class through an MIT program called edX. And I'm also doing some other like cybersecurity training um, because I feel very passionately about, you know, privacy and I don't feel comfortable with, you know, the government knowing everything I do, you know, everything I buy, um, everything I, you know, like read, everything I type on my computer. I mean, it's really at that level. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to acknowledge that. They think, oh, the NSA isn't watching me. They're not listening to my phone calls. That's bullshit. Well, if, if you had nothing to hide, you'd have nothing to worry about, Joanna. Right, that's what, yeah, right. Yeah. That, I get that all the time. It's like, no, you don't, you don't get, you don't care about your, pri- your right to privacy. Do you really want to live in a society where, like, it is literally like 1984. Everything you are doing is is just being logged. It's literally being logged, everything. Like, in some kind of file. Everybody has a file, and everything they say and everything they write, everything they do is literally being documented. I mean, this gets talked about a lot in um, these, you know, computer, um, like, hacker forums. Um, you know, like on uh, Hacker Quarterly 2600, it's a page. It used to be in a magazine. Um in the early sort of days of computers. And, uh, but yeah, this is a huge discussion. It's like, you know, they're literally keeping a file on everybody. And for, for what reason is the question? It's like, why they're basically trying to build an, an idea, a very intimate idea of, of what every person is about. And at at some point that information, you know, they can, they're going to filter out people like individuals and what will happen after that i'm not sure my imagine can my imagination can go in a lot of places with that but but the bottom line is that's what's happening and everybody should care about that because you right, know well, no one was held accountable the last time you know yeah. and so that's how i mean I, ibm got nothing the, the, the ibm was never mentioned in the nuremberg trials why the fuck not like why why weren't you know many american companies um, held accountable, uh, and they're they're huge conglomerate corporations at this point that only grew since then. So you you have people that have contributed to fucking genocide uh, knowingly, uh, only had their companies grow. There wasn't even a slap on the wrist. There was nothing. There was nothing. So what do you expect? You know, I mean, that's kind of. Uh, I mean, that sounds crazy, but it's just true. You can look into it. You know, um, the amount of of, of American companies funding really, really terrible things. It doesn't make me feel good about what they're going to do with the with the profiling, um, the amount of profiling that's happening. You know, because IBM made it really easy to to figure out who who to be taken away and who not to. You know, I mean, it's kind of that was profiling. That's that was basically an old version of Facebook that helped the Holocaust happen. Yeah, uh, and the, so. the Stasi too. I mean, like. People, I, I don't, it just makes me upset that like people didn't pay attention in history class. It's like, how can they, they, why is it so hard for them to, to grasp the idea that, that, um, you know, another Holocaust could happen? Uh, I mean, it happened, you know, we did it to our own American <coughs> Japanese citizens in World War II. Um, I mean, we had detournment camps for U.S. citizens, completely innocent people. Um, and, you know, and also World War II, the Stasi, you know, were, <laughs> we're spying on everybody and it's like 
I don't, I just don't understand the logic with people of why they, why it's so hard for them to grasp that, that, that that's exactly what's happening now. I mean, the NSA is the Stasi. <laughs> it's the same. It is IBM. It's this, it's the same thing. And, you know, hopefully things will take a different direction. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. which I, I think in a way it might, I think there's a very good chance that it might, because, you know, even though there is such uh, red tape with the government, um, people are standing up and, uh, I don't know how much they stood up in like World War Two and you know Germany and during the deluge, but um, I think that with technology now and sharing of information and Facebook, another reason why they're probably watching face- Facebook is because that's the main way people communicate ideas to each other and, and, and to the masses, and um, so that's how they can keep an eye on like you know the the sort of collective consciousness of people and how much control they actually have over them. But yeah. well, I, I used to have a different take on like with World War Two, you know, there's this image that's painted for us. I, I had a, a conversation, many conversations with a group of grandmothers all in their 80s in the middle of the desert. <coughs> I was staying with these these grandmothers that build mud huts. Uh, and wow. <laughs> and uh, they were the they, not all of them were in agreement, but but. It was surprising because these women were around during World War II and uh, they were quite young, but they weren't like babies. And uh, they were all of the most of them were of the opinion that we, first of all, provoked Japan that and that they also felt, first of all, that Pearl Harbor wasn't enough of a threat for us to go to war. Like they, they felt that we pushed them to that point where they had where they felt that they had no other option. They felt that we dropped the bomb just completely like um, that the war was already over and that we dropped the bomb as a statement to the rest of the world. And uh, there's just these ideas that they were saying were like very like conspiratorial, but like they thought it at the time and like they shared that opinion and they were like, like upset with our government for, for basically like they were, they weren't patriotic in, in, you know, at all, Um, you know, there's actually a famous incident where a radar technician or someone, some military guy, he recorded the planes coming. He saw the planes coming. He reported to his superior. There's record of the superior putting it up the chain of command, and there's a record of it, and then it just yeah, disappears. Yeah, I read that before. <laughs> and no, I, yeah, yeah. So there's all there's. It's beyond a doubt that it was cataloged. It was noticed, it and happen. then it was. Uh, yeah. They let it happen. So similar to, I'm willing. That's why I'm willing to entertain uh, kind of an intersection conspiracy point on 9/11, where yeah, we know this is coming. Let's let it happen, and to ensure that, let's install all these extra fail-safes to make sure that yeah. shit really I'm goes off without a hitch. You know, it's like I think that's the most obvious, and and they all make out financially. I mean, there's all kinds of. Um, shady financial shit that went down with those towers a lot of people got rich so it's as obvious to me as that and i don't uh you know i entertain the idea that it was like energy weapons and shit but that's like (laughs) beside the point and it doesn't communicate anything i don't know if we really want to build bridges and figure out or really sort out whatever everything means or the relevance of certain events it's like you have to make it as i guess sane without entertaining too much speculation. If you want to build bridges, if you just want to settle on a new fundamentalism, then yeah, go in whatever direction you want. But it's like, well, they came down. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if that happens, like, <laughs> like, you know, then it's like I would. <laughs> and I'm all for that. I like weird shit. I really, really do. And I don't. I just do not want it to be a fundamentalism and to take it any right, well, seriously. I'm not going like, to sit here and, and all, argue yeah. that the you know the quote that the. The people flying those planes who were themselves the pilots were just fucking hypnotized, you know, <laughs> and like, it's like, well, <laughs> right. I'm open to that, you know, actually that makes more sense than a lot of things, you know, but I don't, I don't fucking know. Actually, I wasn't. <laughs> do you guys, did you, do you guys um, know about the, the, um, the pilot episode of the lone gunman, the guys, the hacker guys from X-Files, they had their own show after X-Files called the lone gun gunman and um the yeah the pilot episode yeah. i think was actually the best explanation of what happened on those planes but the the premise <laughs> of that show was um 
you know, there was like these terrorists that were, you know, going to um, hijack plane, these two planes that were going to go into a very tall building in New York. They didn't say World Trade Centers, but they were going to smash them into buildings. And um, and the way they do that, and, and apparently it was actually like a C, you know, CIA type op in, in the show, um, but it was like, you know, also these terrorists. So they, um, I think what they did was somebody on the ground was actually re- remotely controlling or took over, um, hacked into the control systems of the planes and actually steered them into the planes. So, I mean, I don't know if you saw that, but that was, I think that was like the best explanation that I've really heard or seen. I mean, it's very um, practical in the, in the sense that, you know, um, you can actually hack into a system like a plane, like you could anything like a computer from the ground and just take over the, you know, the pilot. Oh, well, that, you know, that happened with that journalist. I'm forgetting Michael Hastings or um, that's not correct, but it was more recent where his car just all of a sudden amped up to huge speeds and he crashed into a tree and it blew up and the engine flew into the air. And anyway, he wasn't like the the most dangerous person in America or anything, but he was like, he spoke to power more than most people for sure. And he even wrote off an email saying how he was afraid for his life, basically a day, if not hours before his death. And then his car suddenly went crazy out of control. And honestly, like a day or two after his death, funny enough, like DARPA or some sort of government agency was hosting this convention. And one of the speakers spoke directly to the idea of uh, being able to remotely control someone else's car. And them losing control of everything, whether they all they have to do is like very minor things like a CD or something. If you have a CD player like that can be encoded with something that uh, can then let them overtake the uh, the HUD and all that kind of stuff. So it's so amazing, like how how right, how subterfuge can really work. I mean, heart attack guns, all kinds of yeah, shit yeah. that people don't even know yeah, exists there's tons of to kill stuff people. Like that. people-
Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.